Hello and welcome to Right Wing Dharma Squads episode 32. I am your host, Dharma Kirti, joined as always by the squad of Background Baby, uh, as well as uh, Aura, Kagyu, and Storm King, if you guys want to say hi. Hey, fellas. Um, and yeah, today we are continuing. <laughs> we are continuing our discussion of Nagarjuna's Root Verses of the Middle Way. Um, we left off last time at chapter 13. We've mentioned this a few times, but I, you know, just sort of for um, people who may not know or, or um, people who, you know, it's, it's, uh, unfortunately we had a little bit of an interruption, but that's okay. Um, you know, a lot of these arguments are the same. A lot of the, um, a lot of the kind of uh, analysis that Nagarjuna is doing is, it's basically the same argument applied to different categories or Abhidharma type um ideas you know ways in which the, the sort of scholastic buddhist framework and it just kind of goes from thing to thing and applies this this kind of neither one nor many argument or this you know it can't be this but it also can't be that and obviously it can't be both or neither so what are we even talking about so we're gonna try to um oh damn it it's and doing the thing again with the with the audio i'm gonna have to I'll be, let me be, uh shit okay I'll be, one second uh windows now i'm gonna be spend posting this is this is fantastic thank you windows thank you for changing settings um that that i never asked you to change that's really sorry for that okay so uh as i was saying the um the argument is kind of the same in a lot of different contexts what what's different um oh, i mean there are to be clear kind of other things going on but, but what's different often is the particular object of the critique. And so one thing I was thinking of doing, um, and we'll see kind of how it goes as we go along, is using this as, a, as an opportunity to kind of have a Abhidharma 101. And, and maybe Abhidharma 101 should be its own future show at some point or something. There's, there's, you know, it's a very interesting topic, and Abhidharma is kind of, you know, for the first several hundred years, really basically up to about a thousand years um, after the, the, the Buddha taught. So from about 500 before Christ to about 500 after the birth of Christ, it was um, like there, that's kind of almost coextensive with, with Buddhist scholastic philosophy. You, you started getting the Mahayana stuff towards the end of that. Um, but even then, a lot of Mahayana stuff, especially a lot of, a lot of early Mahayana stuff, was... <laughs> What was it? <laughs> it was uh, it was uh, basically just just Mahayana Abhidharma, and in fact, the the Yogacara tradition, which is the other great other great tradition of, of Mahayana philosophy, is is basically a Mahayana kind of Abhidharma. So Abhidharma is really important, and I don't want to you know go through all because it's just it's just endless. It really is just endless. But um, it, it's an interesting way to kind of approach it through through seeing how Nagarjuna critiques. Um, critiques the different Abhidharma categories and, and lists and so on. But before we, we jump, uh, yeah, please. Yeah, hey, real quick, something I'd I like to just note because it's really cool. Um, there's like a, the more I read this, the more I realize that like Nagarjuna's dialectical style is something that you can just apply everywhere. Yeah. So one of the things you'll see him do over and over again is he's confronted with some assertion by the whoever his interlocutor is, and he'll pick two qualities that can't coexist, like one or many, and he'll say it's either, and usually it's it has an essence or it doesn't. And then if you follow having an essence or the complete lack of essence or whatever, or the complete non-existence, I'm sorry. So it's usually 
Well, whatever the thing you're saying, either it has an essence or it completely doesn't exist. It has to be one or the other. It can't be both. So then he'll follow both of those lines until they don't make sense, forcing the opponent to concede basically that emptiness is actually the case. And and I've been noticing as I've just been talking to people about different stuff that that dialectic is really powerful. It's kind of like what deconstructionism wanted to be in a yes, just world. That's exactly right. Yeah. Well, and there's cool. a very famous um, book by uh, Robert Maggiola, I think. Famous, and I mean, you know, for people who are in nerds about this stuff. Um, called, uh, I think, uh, the, I forget if it's the Buddha on the mend or Derrida on the mend. But he basically, like, he, you know, sort of notes that the way Derrida talks about existence is very, very similar in some really important ways to the to how Nagarjuna talks about existence. They seem to have, like, stumbled independently into some of the same, um, there's particularly this idea of a tetralemma of neither existence nor non-existence nor both nor neither. Um... So yeah, now I mean I you know and and as a as a kid who was interested in this kind of stuff, I always you know it it took me a while, but I sort of eventually landed in a place where I was like, yeah, you know the the problem with with deconstruction and that whole kind of approach, it isn't that um, it isn't necessarily anything wrong with it itself, really. It's it's mostly just that uh, you have to go somewhere with it and they don't necessarily go anywhere with it that it it just becomes like you know it's it's it, it's skepticism in a certain sense of skepticism for its own sake and it doesn't lead you anywhere it lacks yeah, the soteriology you know, yeah exactly that's right and also you know I, the, it's funny you think i might get more and more sort of rigorous and sort of hard-minded as i get older but in fact the opposite has happened <laughs> and um you know the thing about deconstruction and especially certain figures like Derrida is that the flavor is all wrong and so it's I think that those things really matter that the 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 spirit in which things are done is reflected in the words that people use the way they put forth their arguments and stuff and the fact of the matter is that uh, life is not a math project and neither is philosophy at, at the very very core of it at the very very end of it is not really a math project either uh, I, I don't know if I could tell you what it is instead, but there, there, there is something to be said for, yeah, the spirit in which things are done. And you can see the complete opposite end of the spectrum, the spirit of Nagarjuna, for example, and the spirit of Derrida, even though in some places you can find interesting similarities between the way they argue. Well, I yeah, mean, totally. It, it, I mean, I, I think that it would be, I mean, probably because I guess DK. Would you make the argument that it's because Derrida and the Paris School of Deconstruction in general is kind of coming at this from an implicitly Luciferian standpoint, like most of the left does? I think a lot of that stuff. I mean, yeah, I would be willing to at least. I would actually say listen to that argument. Yeah. So what? And you mean Luciferian in what sense exactly? Like an inversion? And as as an inversion of what we might call like the. the world of tradition or the world of truth with a t with uh, of the ab of the of what's true or what's good or what is um basically just the idea of inverting that or undermining that in general yeah it's taking like a process which is originally aimed at transcendence like so we're transcending transcending these like linguistic bounds and these mental formations and then on the deconstructionist school it's like we're just tearing them down just to tear them down just to nah 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 it's not real i mean yeah it's like nagarjuna is trying to like when when he's doing this he's it's it's kicking out like your conceptualizations but it's doing it so you can have something so you can go beyond the conventional truth and find like 
what's actually the ultimate true. truth. The yeah. ultimate truth, you're right. Whereas with them, they're kicking it all down and replacing it with literally nothing. Right. Like, nothing absolutely. except for some implied leftist political talking points usually, but that's just because yep. of who's doing it. Um, all right, so if y'all are ready to jump in, I have some remarks on just kind of generally on chapter 13, which is Go about for it. compounded compounded phenomenon. Yes. All right, so easy example. What is a compounded phenomenon? And this is really an example of kind of like the subject of this whole work. I'm going to use a gin and tonic, which is my go-to liquor drink. I love gin and tonic. Um, you have the gin, the tonic, the ice, and the glass. There, so the, all those things put together are referred to as a gin and tonic. And a gin and tonic, a glass of gin and tonic is something we would call, that's a thing. That's an individual entity. But we can take out the gin and we can take out the tonic and the ice and break the glass and we can break the glass into its atoms and break everything into its atoms and then break them down further to quarks to the point where we're at the quantum level and they don't even exist. They have a probability to exist or whatever kind of silliness you want to put in there. The point is we never find a gin and tonic. We never find something that has essentially the qualities of gin and tonic that's immutable, that is unchangeable in its gin and tonicness. So that's a compounded phenomenon. It's something composed of parts um, that when you take the parts away, there's nothing. There's an emptiness, right? It's kind of the opposite of Deleuze and Guattari's body without organs. It's organs without a body. How's that strike you? That that sounds really great. The only kind of additional thing that I would that I would add, and uh, for those who who um, maybe haven't been following all the way along, which is fine, but we we do have an episode on. Um, quantum stuff we, we probably it's a deep well that we, I, I would like personally to return to um because that's you know the world that's like the, the world i got to he uh that, that's my world but uh the uh yeah i mean that that's a that's a great point um the the, the additional thing to say is um if you look at the the verses the first two verses the kind of the the, the broader point here is that there's a kind of internal buddhist argument or question here because the the um in fact that level of analysis um of talking you know examining whether what it means to say that that phenomena are composite and that in fact if you analyze them and you see that they're composite you see that they don't have any kind of self-essence so that actually goes all the way back to the original abhidharma like there's a there's a foundational distinction in the abhidharma um between what is really existent or what is what they call sub, sub, substantively existent, which is dravya sat, and what is merely designated to exist, which is pragnapti sat. And this is the like the the key thing to understand about the Abhidharma. It kind of, you know, the the, the the absolute what you if you take absolutely nothing else away from the Abhidharma and, and from kind of basic Buddhist analysis in general, you can take away this distinction between substantive existence and designated existence and and the and the the essence of the distinction here is that what is designated to exist has parts because only something that is really like the only way that you can talk about or think about something that's kind of substantively existent that has its own existence would be something that that doesn't have parts because if it has parts then you then you know you you can analyze it and and so it's not ultimately real it's not simple now this obviously gets like kind of complicated because for the Abhidharmakas, they saw 
is it what, what you could call atoms? They're not exactly atoms in the sense that we mean them. Um, they're, they're it, it, that's a whole whole long discussion that I won't go into. But it's the point dharmas, is, right? Yeah, they're called dharmas, and there are there are essentially material dharmas. There are also mental dharmas, like a cognition is a dharma. But you also, and then when you're talking about material dharmas, it's important. It's almost almost more phenomenological than material because like dharmas, you have elemental dharmas like the element of earth and the element of water the element of fire and so on but then you also have like like color dharmas so you have like a, a dar an individual like an atom that's a that's blue that's like a blue atom so it, it's it's a little bit you know it gets a little complicated and then the mahayana a large part of mahayana philosophy consists in sort of um fixing the problems with that that, that causes while still maintaining this basic division between you know, if, if something is real, then it has to be ontologically simple. It has to be ontologically singular. And if something isn't ontologically singular, which is to say if it isn't an individual momentary, essentially some kind of atomic particle, um, then it doesn't really exist in the way that we sort of, you know, we can kind of talk about it. We can use language about it. We can refer to it in a certain way, but it's not real in the way that fundamental particles are real. And so what 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 he's getting at what what Nagarjuna is getting at in this verse is there's this kind of internal Buddhist debate because so an opponent or somebody says you know the blessed one that is the Buddha said whatever is deceptive in nature is vain and all composite things being deceptive in nature they are vain but then if if he says whatever is deceptive in nature is vain then then what is there to be deceived about and so in other words like if if you Nagarjuna are saying that everything like is that is like why would the Buddha talk about designated existence in this way if 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 it if it's all just kind of pointless and, and and so there's a kind of nihilistic misunderstanding of what's going on and the and Nagarjuna is responding he says no you know the the Buddha said that all decept all phenomena all composite phenomena are deceptive and point vain in the sense of like pointless like whatever like this goes back again all the way to the um an old style kind of Buddhist analysis of like, why did the Buddha sit under the Bodhi tree? Why was he, what, what was the background of his, of his quest for enlightenment was this fundamental insight that any source of pleasure, any source of enjoyment that he could seek after, it was causally conditioned, right? So whatever it was that he was, you know, whether, you know, food, money, sex, whatever, you have the conditions and they're going to get the you get the thing. But then when the conditions run out, you no longer have the thing. And that causes pain that causes suffering. And so that's why it was so important. He's like, well, I want something that's unconditioned. I want something that's beyond causes and conditions. That, and, and that is what in the Buddhist analysis nirvana is. The whole point of nirvana is that it's unconditioned, unconditioned nirvana, meaning it's no longer something. It's not something that like you have to assemble the causes for and conditions for, because if it were, then as soon as those causes were gone and every, everything being impermanent, eventually they would be then you know you would no longer be in nirvana and you'd be right back stuck in the sick in the cycle of existence um and so what what Nagarjuna yeah. is driving out here sorry just to finish up is to say yeah. you know this is why we're doing this um and you know i would say like on on some of those same points like you know if, if nirvana is unconditioned so for something to be conditioned it needs to have that kind of real being you talked about with essences right so that leads me to believe like the actual state of things is unconditioned. 
it, they only appear conditioned because of our conventions and their relativity to us. That's right. Well, what what is what is what is Nagarjuna's kind of big broad theme here? One of them is like what do you, when you're talking about conditions and causality, like what are you even talking about, bro? Like it, it's you know there, there's all of this is just kind of this massive. It's like a hallucination or a story we're telling ourselves about things that aren't yeah. even real at all in the first place, right? Yeah, yeah. So what, I guess the whole point of what I'm saying here is that samsara is a superficial obscuration of nirvana. It's never really actually removed or obscured. It appears that way to us because our karma has led us to be grasping, delusive, lack of virtue, etc. You know, it's like you can't, you can't, you can't fold up the dharmata and obscure the dharmata. If you guys will indulge me, um, this, I, I was going through some, uh, like an old, uh, uh, external hard, hard drive uh, earlier today, actually. And I found these old series of essays that I had written on um, Buddhism and rationality. And this was from like over 10 years ago when I was, um, uh, please no bully, but I used to uh, like read those Eliad, Eliezer Yudkowsky blogs, like Overcoming Bias. And uh, I forget what the other one was called. Do you guys, are you aware of that whole is that like Is that like the Slate Star Codex Sphere type thing? Yeah, it's in that sphere. Yeah, I'd like occasionally like check of... in with Scott. I'm sorry, I just can't take Polly or any of the. And these people are such retards. Like, I just have a heart. I mean, not, yeah. it's not to bully you. It's just like no, I know, like, like primal Polly and and that. Yeah, yeah. So just I, I don't know that one. Applied rationality. There's a whole group of people that call themselves yeah. like effective altruists and applied yeah, rationalists yeah. and blah blah blah. And it's basically but, just like it's like kind it's of the, the, the impulse well, you're, behind you're, bodhisattva you're activity. Getting, Sorry, I'm, I don't yeah. mean to. I don't mean to. to You're going lie. far afield, though, from <laughs> okay, from the okay. from the uh, from the the people I'm talking about. Those people sort of branched off from this. Uh, gotcha. These these rationalist um, uh, sides, and they really, to be to their credit, they started re- sort of apolitical. They were just trying to um, sort of categorize the what do you call them the um, the built-in biases that people have. So, you know, like confirmation bias and all, all those kinds of like biases that pop up again and again. And it, it's basically like a community to come up with strategies for rigorously testing your own conclusion. They're super into Bayesian uh, analysis, that kind of stuff, right? Is this and, like less wrong and stuff like that too? Yes, those people. Yes, less wrong, those people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, a whole bunch of stuff came out of that that is um, embarrassing and bad and full of biases, interestingly. Um, <laughs> but um, when I was really into that stuff, I was trying to apply some of it to um, to Buddhism because I, I saw a, an intersection between the idea of, yeah, of that overcoming bias, you know, Bayesian analysis, that kind of thing, with what Buddhism is doing, which is, you know, seeing through illusions, seeing through your own biases, right? And um, realizing where you're reifying things and when you're not. And this is this is related to Nagarjuna, although this is in my very sort of um, uh, backwoods country kind of way, not not quite so sophisticated. But there, I'll get to the point here. So there's a there's a sort of famous argument that they would use about um, blue eggs and red cubes. So you're imagine you're a sorter in a factory and these items are coming down uh, a conveyor belt and you're supposed to put blue eggs into one bin and red cubes into another bin and if a so you're doing it and then what a red egg comes along should you put it in, and the blue eggs are called blegs and the red cubes are called rubes so if a red blegs. egg comes in oh god yeah blegs and rubes <laughs> if a if a red <laughs> 
I don't know if I can continue. Sorry, with this go now, on. Actually, no. <laughs> I, just, I couldn't let it pass. I, Maybe that's. I, a I'm gonna poor, say Blake likes six more times in this ex, exegesis. No, in this exegesis, so I'm gonna say Blake likes. Oh no, Blegs. All so, these uh, if, and how they look at the Blegs. Sorry. Okay. Sorry. Exactly. So if if a red egg comes along the conveyor belt, it, do you put it with the Blegs or the Rubes, right? <laughs> um, and yes. so there's this question. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So there's that. That's the sort of starter question. And I was I just sort of was riffing off of that. And the, you know the, the the Zen idea, which is very Nagarjuna based. You know, the old um, if a tree falls in a forest and it doesn't make a sound, or and no one is there to hear it, doesn't make a sound. And I was just Pointing out the obvious thing that most people have probably thought about on that thing is that, well, it depends if you're talking about uh, air waves, you know, like condensed air that we usually think of as sound waves. Does it make that? Yes. Does it make an auditory perception inside the head of a person? No. So then the question is, when we say make a sound, do we mean make air waves or do we mean um, have an auditory experience inside someone's mind? And, you know, the question is the, the sort of there's no answer there, but the what it's pointing out is that our idea of making a sound or whatever is is just a concept, right? It's a, there, there's no such thing as making a uh, you, sound. It's, yes, but now that's that's a whole great other topic. I, you lost me on the connection to the blue eggs. Yeah, well, I'm getting there. Oh, okay. So, so, so what? So now imagine that if you are the reason you're putting blegs here and rubes there is because the blegs have uh, 98% of them have some palladium inside of them, and you're trying to collect all the palladium, right? And only two percent of the rubes do, so that's why you're celibate. You're saying uh, despite being two percent of the, no, sorry, go on. Oh boy, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, but the point is that the reason you're you're sorting them for is is not for the blueness, the eggness, or the redness, or the cubeness. It's for some other thing that tends to correlate with that that set of factors, right? So then you could say, well, let me just use a palladium detector, and then I'll get my palladium out, right? And it keeps it can keep going like this sort of infinitely and you can get to this point where you're still trying to define to yourself what's a bleg and what's a rube right but the there there is no like according to what you're interested in there there is no bleg like because you can have a blue egg that doesn't have palladium is it a bleg or not it's like it doesn't matter it doesn't matter because that idea is just something in your head that you've been using as a heuristic to sort through to get to what you need right so you know is pluto a planet or not i don't know it's like Sure, yeah, if you want well, this, it to be. This is yeah. a form of kind of okay. So now I think I understand where you're going with this, and I completely agree. And and this is something that I thought about a lot. And maybe it's something that um, people would be help. It would be helpful maybe for people to hear. I don't know, but um, yeah, a lot of philosophy concerns categorization, and a lot of what passes, or I should say, what passes for philosophy. Maybe you want to be snarky about it, but the point is that. Um, you know, when so much like I, I think you can see this, I think, with the same thing with the um, a lot of the like the gender stuff. When people talk, you know, the people talk this way sometimes, you know, first of all, there's this pretense of scientificity where they're saying, you know, oh, well, um, you know, if you look at the published literature, like, you know, appeal to credentials in terms of somebody says something about, you know, how gender is a performance or a construction or whatever. And therefore now it exists in this kind of form that we can point to and say, you know, OK, well, this is now knowledge and it's scientific. And so it carries a certain kind of authority and, and blah, blah, blah. OK, but what's interesting at a kind of metaphilosophical level, or you could say sort of from Nagarjuna's perspective or, or a kind of Nagarjunian perspective is you know, you're you're making this mistake of taking your narratives way too seriously. You're saying like, okay, w w the world presents us with certain phenomena, 
for heuristic reasons, we kind of, you know, and, and at a certain level, I think, you know, we can't even help it. I think that's, there's an important aspect of this where, um, and, and this isn't very explicit in the text, but there's an idea of um, needing to use, like part of the point of meditation is precisely to kind of undo these things that we don't even notice that we're doing because it just happens so fast. Um, and so we're, we're unwinding this very, very deeply held um, habit, habitual tendency to categorize in a certain way or to impose our, our kind of, you know, conceptual framework on reality. But yeah, you know, so when having, having this kind of conceptual framework or any kind of conceptual framework, then we kind of like say, okay, well, you know, we have male and female, right? And this, this reality presents to, presents to us in a certain way where, you know, male and female are categories that make sense. But maybe there's certain kind of, maybe intersex is a phenomenon, or maybe there's, you know, men who really like to behave like women in certain ways for whatever reason, et cetera. But the point is that like, okay, so then on the basis of this, of this narrative, on the basis of this conceptual framework, we, we construct ever more kind of elaborate conceptual frameworks. And so, yeah, when we, you know, when you could see from, you know, we, we, on one level, we could say like, well, any kind of conceptual framework is sort of beside the point. But at another level, um, we could also say, you know, actually, this is this is literally endless. There's never going to be a point at which your your concepts are going to perfectly map onto reality because right, reality is fundamentally beyond any kind of conceptualization. And that's definitely an important part of what's going on in this text is he's really showing the ways in which all of our conceptualizations or you know, whatever kind of conceptual story or framework you're going to tell, it, it's never really going to do all of the work you know, that you want it to do. And then you hit this point of diminishing returns where you have to like make ever more elaborate, ever more elaborate conceptual schemes to try to like deal with all of these exceptions and complexities but then that just creates more work and it becomes some kind of uh, I forget the technical term but it's a kind of a computer science program where the more you try to problem rather I should say where the more you try to um, to solve for this kind of a problem the more problems it creates until the time to solve just goes to infinity well you know, oh, the classical reminds... example is epicycles in, in yeah yeah uh, exactly astronomy Ep yeah, yeah yeah like I to, to, to maybe clumsily so got a great math. comment from Ian Taylor. <laughs> Nagarjan is the real N-word. Sorry, that's uh, <laughs> fantastic. All right, sorry, go on. Uh, so I'm going to clumsily wield a math term that I think I understand. So I, like the way I like to think of it is that conceptuality is asymptotic to reality. And an asymptote yes. is like a number with infinite decimals that gets... Uh, infinitely more specific and infinitely closer to an another asymptote number, is a but it never gets yeah. there. An asymptote is an imaginary line. Essentially, it's imaginary, not in the technical sense of like an imaginary number. Just it's it's a it's a line that defines the value that a function approaches without ever actually getting there. So, an asymptotic function is a function that, for increasing values of x, will like approach a certain value of y. But you'll never actually get there, and no matter how big x is, it like it'll get closer and closer to y, but it will never actually actually get there. And you have to, in order to get like that much closer to y, you have to increase the value of x, essentially exponentially more, in, and, and and exponentially more, and exponentially more, and exponentially more, uh, in order to get there. This is a total side note, but um, this is why people often misunderstand faster than light stuff. This is essentially the problem with faster than light travel, is because of the way like the universe works in order to accelerate the closer you get to the speed of light in order to accelerate closer to the speed of light you have to put in exponentially more uh energy into the system but the problem is essentially you appoint you approach a point where you're you're 
you have to you have to put an infinite amount of energy in order to actually reach that asymptote, which is the speed of light. That was a complete side note. I just thought it was cool, and maybe you could throw it out there. Uh, do we want? It just seemed like it was a it was like a, a good model for what you were saying. Yeah, no, it is. It definitely that's exactly right. Um, that's exactly. I right. have some other stuff that I want to mention on chapter thirteen about compounded phenomenon. Go. Uh, so far in the book or in the work, this is really the first time that we're starting to make like a. Uh, a, a positive, uh, it, deliberate characterization of emptiness, right? So far, things have been, we've gotten there through implications and through consequences, and now he's coming at it more directly. And what we're finding is that emptiness is wholly negative in character. It's uh, it's not a thing in the sense that things we designate we think of as things, right? It's Emptiness is not a replacement essence. It's not just essence through the back door, which I think is... Uh, some of the other philosophical schools, like maybe the Gelugs. I don't know. We've talked about that a little, but yeah, so that's not what's going on. We're not replacing essences with emptiness and, and emptiness is not being reified. So I just thought that was neat. This is the first part of the book where we're now talking directly about the conclusion, you know, about the end goal. Yeah. Cause that's actually, I mean, like some t- early on when I was like first looking at Buddhism, I was kind of drawing a lot of similarity between emptiness and Nirguna Brahman from Vedanta, which is like Brahman without characteristics. But if you really look into it, um, what Adi Shankara and the Vedantins are kind of doing is taking this kind of contentless Brahman and turning that into this kind of universal essence or this universal substrate from which um, everything is, is almost emerging or everything is... It's, it's almost like the, the actual universal essence, but it itself doesn't really have any characteristics. It's, it is, like like you said, bringing back in essence through the back door. Yeah. yeah. You guys know that I'm... Uh... Yeah, go ahead. Some... DVD Mothman from the chat has just said the word Gnostic. And I must say again that the, the ideology of Gnosticism is that the world is fundamentally corrupt and that you're going to have to escape it through some or other kind of self-annihilation. That is not what Buddhism is. Buddhism is the world, everything simply is as it is. And the problem is that we habitually create mental defilements that cause us to perceive the world and experience the world as inherently bad. That's not the same thing. We're not saying, yeah, some, yeah it's very different. It's, yeah. yeah, it's, I mean, it's true. And that, uh, go ahead, buddy. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's like you could actually say that, that the actual nature, I mean, the, the Buddha nature is pure. And that really, it's only your the ignorance of an of, of your ignorance which has made the world appear to suck. Oh, okay, so DVD, <laughs> yeah. DVD Mothman was saying that about the um, uh, about about the false backdoor, not about us. So I'm sorry to ah, DVD okay. Mothman. Cool. Yeah, but if anyone has that question, we did address it in our last episode a couple weeks ago. We kind of went into a bit of depth on the the charge of whether or not Buddhism is Gnostic, uh, and we rejected that charge. I just wanted to say before we leave chapter thirteen, you guys know that I'm I love going back to the old, um, you know, to the to the original canon, uh, whether in Sanskrit or Pali, and I like that the Siddharitz, um, uh translation here, the commentary. Uh, does a little hark back um, to a uh, dialogue between the Buddha and Kashyapa uh, in the canon um, to, to sort of emphasize Storm's point there about talking about uh, the, you know, what emptiness is and, and the uses of emptiness. So um, the Buddha says to Kashyapa, it is as if, Kashyapa, that there were a sick person and a doctor were to give that person a physic, which is, you know, like some 
some wait before we, I, I wanted to I actually literally physically sure. highlighted this and those of you who are on the stream can literally see that I actually like highlighted the PDF um, before we get to the actual site I wasn't sure where you were going it's like oh I wanted to highlight this and because it's so important and this is a very 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 famous verse and it's it's really the heart of it um, the verse is and this is where the the kind of the the commentary that Aura was talking about goes emptiness is taught by the conquerors that is the Buddhas as the expedient to get rid of all metaphysical views, all views. It just says views in Sanskrit. He's supplying metaphysical, that's fine. But for the but those for whom emptiness is a metaphysical view have been called incurable. And uh, I wanted to talk about that a little bit, but first, Aura, please continue. I just wanted, that's like the kind of framework for this discussion. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so, you know, e emptiness is, is, it's like he's saying it's very useful, but it's not the thing in and of itself. That's sort of, and here's another. So the Buddha says to the Kashyapa, it is as if Kashyapa, there were a sick person and a doctor were to give that person a physic and the physic having gone to the gut, physic just being like a, a powerful, um, like emetic or something like that to, to cure a person, but through illness, essentially, uh, that physic having gone to the gut, having eliminated all the person's bad humors was not ex itself expelled. What do you think, Kashyapa? Would that person then be free of disease? No, Lord, says Kashyapa. The illness of the person would be more intense if the physic eliminated all the bad humors but was not expelled from the gut. So you can obviously see what he's saying there. It's uh, the, 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 the doctrine of emptiness can get rid of uh, all your delusions, but if you cling to the doctrine of emptiness itself, you might even you you're, you're not any better. In fact, it, there's hinted there that it's uh, you'll be it's worse. worse. Off. Well, it, it's actually it's a severe error, and it's a severe error in several different ways. Um, the 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 most basic one is to repeat: emptiness is not a view. I'm going to say that a third time: emptiness is not a view. Emptiness is not a conceptual framework. Emptiness is not an idea. Emptiness is not a concept. There is a concept of emptiness. Right. We can like have a certain kind of conceptual understanding. In fact, we have to. I mean, you know, it's extremely important to to uh, if we want to really start getting wisdom and getting experience in these things and, and, and start understanding the nature of reality for ourselves in, in a deep and profound way. Yeah, that starts with a kind of conceptual understanding of emptiness. OK, yep. but huge but. That is not the same. That is not emptiness, right? That is like emptiness, actual, the real emptiness of phenomena is not a concept. It is not a view. If you, if you have it as some kind of, you know, thing that, that, that you're clinging to in the sense of like, okay, now I see that all phenomena are empty and that is my view. And that's the right view because that's the Buddhist view that Nagarjuna thought that's wrong. That is wrong. And not only is it wrong, it's extremely dangerous. It can lead to nihilism. It can lead to pride. It can lead to all kinds of very, very bad things that we don't want. So it's extremely important to understand that emptiness is not a view. Emptiness is not a concept. Emptiness is not something that we should be clinging on. Emptiness is, is just, it's just how phenomena are. It's, it's part of, it's one, you know, depending on how you, you want to look at it, it's, it's just, you know, every, all phenomena are empty and emptiness is you know, insofar as we can think of it, it, it uh, the, they have a quote from the commentary here. The, the Siddharths and um, Katsura have a quote from Buddha Palita. He uh, sums up the situation more positively by describing those who do not make this error and instead see things correctly. Quote, they see that emptiness is also empty. 
and sometimes people think of the emptiness of emptiness as a kind of in a kind of like nihilistic way and and maybe that in, not nihilistic nihilistic in the sense of you know we're undercutting the um the whole point of the emptiness of emptiness right emptiness and the emptiness of emptiness of emptiness blah 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 and so on kind of infinitely recursively the point is that at no level do we stop at like okay and that's what's real the whole point here is to get us to understand that our sort of our it's it's our deeply ingrained search for some kind of foundation that is the problem that is fundamentally like a kind of psychological problem and that manifests in certain ways by the impulse to do a certain kind of philosophy right is like i want to categorize the world i want the world to make sense so i'm going to start trying to categorize the world in a certain way and this is pre-theoretical um there's a there's you know if you ever if, if those of you who may be interested in like uh, you know, Psycholinguistics is a great book by uh, George Lakoff and I, Mark Johnson, I think, called uh, Metaphors We Live By. It's basically like, you know, and, and then there's been, that was from the 80s. There's, I'm sure there's um, more recent work. But, you know, this is, this is like, this is neurological even. This is deeply ingrained in our cognitive apparatus is this kind of, we're constantly categorizing, constantly trying to make sense of our world by, by putting things in a certain kind of place mentally. And, and that's useful up to a point. That's necessary even for our survival, like evolutionarily up to a point. That's what distinguishes humans from non-human animals in large part. But it, it's not going to get us at the nature of reality as it actually is because the nature of reality as it actually is, is beyond any of those kind of categorizations. And so we have to work at the, and again, this is where meditation comes in is we have to work at that level of ourselves at that level of our kind of psychological impulse or just habit of constantly projecting all of our little categorization schemes onto reality. I got two things. Um, one is a quote that I really like by everybody's favorite cartoon cat. Um, the emptiness of things is their conventional nature. The emptiness of emptiness is that this is as far as it goes. I'm going to say it one more time. The emptiness of things is their conventionally constructed nature. The emptiness of emptiness is that this is as far as it goes. Thank you for that. I love, thank you for that. Interesting comment. I love Heathcliff. Um, it's Garfield. <laughs> That's from the, the sketchy translation that I like more because of my background. Um, but the other thing is there's a, a term of art in Zen for this exact problem. When you get hung up on the understanding part of it, you say you stink of Zen, which I always, I always like that. That's funny. Um, yeah. Other stuff from chapter 13. It's just sort of like nuts and bolts arguments. Um, he talks about change. Um, and I think the most crucial thing to point out is that it's, you know, people will want to say, well, you know, it's only by things essentially having the nature of changing that they can change, right? So things having essences is what allows for change. That actually makes change impossible. If something essentially is, definitionally, it cannot change. It is only if things are empty of self-essence and dependently originated that they can change at all. And furthermore, that's also what allows things to change in the appropriate way. Uh, I, I tweeted about this earlier, but, you know, the match automatically attends the fuel in order to become fire. For this, they have to be empty of self-essence and fundamentally, well, not fun, empty of self-essence and relative, right? So that's something he emphasizes in chapter 13, is that it's actually the emptiness of things that, that, um, that make them able to change. Another we should move on is, to the next chapter. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, that's it. I'm just saying... Um, yeah. Okay. We can move on. Yeah. Same thing. Well, no. I was gonna. <laughs> no. This is so bad because I was gonna. 
I was going to say we should move on after I talk. Um, so <laughs> instead of letting you finish no, your piece. All right, I'll finish. <laughs> um, um, yeah, I was just, you know, I can't ever let that topic come up without um, pointing something out, which is that exactly what you said is true, Storm King. And what's so important about that from where we sit as just ordinary people is that because things are empty like this, because uh, there is dependent coordination, um, whether or not Nagarjuna wants to <laughs> pick that apart, but because this this sort of structure is is the way that we experience phenomenon is so important because it means that actual change is possible. It means that you actually have the ability to change your karma, to to change your experience, and to to tread the path of enlightenment. Because, like you said, Storm, if 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 these things had these inherent essences and stuff, then change wouldn't be possible, and there would be no point to any of this, right? We would in just fact, stick in suffering forever. Says exactly this toward the end of the work, but we'll get there eventually. Yeah, excellent, <laughs> excellent. All um, right, chapter yeah, let's 14, move on. Yeah. which I have labeled in my notes is about connection. Um, relationship of compounded components. So, you know, there might be a tendency to maybe reify connection. If someone was a Buddhist, they might say, well, you know, since we're claiming that things are, are dependent um, essentially, or by their nature, or what have you, you know, they have to be constructed as dependent. Maybe those links have to be real, right? Maybe the um, the causal chains and the connections things have to each other. Maybe they have to be real. Well, that is the same problem we just discussed with change. It's just now you're reifying, you know, the imaginary middleman instead of the things on the ends. Um, so if we reify change or connection, we're going to have <clears throat> you get a uh, an infinite tree of connections, right? If the blegs are connected to the rubes and the connection is real, then you have the bleg and the connection to the connection and the connection to the rube. And then you have the bleg and the connection to 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 the rube. Do you see where I'm going with that? Yeah, you're left, with of... an, you're left with an octa rube with that many connections. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, my, and... joke, my joke fell for that. <laughs> some, oh, <laughs> some, uh, uh. Let's see what else have I got here. Oh, um, the whole concept of connection, it, it relies on the idea of difference. And the idea of difference is, wouldn't you know it, predicated upon the idea of distinct things bearing certain qualities, essentially. Difference implies substantial existence. Substantial existence, as we have seen, is not coherent. And, you know, you might say, well, maybe each thing essentially bears the quality of being different from other things. Well, this also won't work because the whole idea of difference is relational. There is no non-relational difference. There is no orange that is different than, right? You see how that doesn't make any sense? It'd have to be different than an apple, different than a papaya. You cannot reify the connections. It makes very little sense or no sense. Okay, fellas, what do you think? Yeah, so that's, a, the, the, the point is that yeah, I, I think you were going with the orange papaya. Exactly. Difference, in order for there to be conjunction, right? In order for, so the the kind of, Nagarjuna provides two ways in which he's talking about conjunction. Um, he starts by talking about this very classical Abhidharma formulation of um, how you get cognition, sensory cognition, which is that you have a faculty, like the eye is the visual faculty, 
that has some kind of ill-defined or it's a complicated topic, but there's a contact. Sorry, I, I, I just understood Aura's joke. <laughs> the Octoroon, yeah, sorry, I didn't yeah. want to, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Delayed views on. on that one. <laughs> it just it just hit me. Good night, everybody. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so there's the eye faculty that actually enters into this kind of a conjunction, essentially, some kind of causal conjunction with the... Um, with the visual object, visible form. Um, and then it's this conjunction or this contact between the faculty and the object that produces uh, the sensory cognition, in this case, the visual cognition. And, and in Abhidharma analysis, there are six kinds of faculty, include the five sensory plus the mental faculty, six kinds of object, six kinds of consciousness. Um, and... The idea, and then this kind of gets caught, this internal debate between certain Abhidharma schools if, to all, if all of these are existing simultaneously or not, which doesn't really matter because the analysis that Nagarjuna is making is that basically he's saying, okay, well, if you want to say that the eye faculty comes into some kind of causal contact, now we in a kind of scientific framework, quote unquote, you know, modern, whatever, we would say, well, it's light that's hitting hitting the retina, blah, blah, blah. Okay, that's fine. But the point is that you're still talking about, like, okay, there's this medium of light that's sort of transferring the form of the object in some way to the retina. But it's like, okay, I am, look, I am looking at whatever, an apple, okay? So the light is hitting the apple, and the light from the that has hit the apple is now hitting my retina, right? Okay. The point remains that there is some kind of causal conjunction. We can dig into the details on this, and it gets a very, very interesting if we do. But again, it's kind of beside the point that Nagarjuna is getting at, which is you're saying that this, this, there's this causal relationship between this object and this faculty that is somehow producing this consciousness. Okay, well, in order for, in order for these things to be causally conjoined in this sense, in other words, in order for there to be this causal relationship between the light and the apple and my eye and the visual co consciousness of the apple that's produced by the interaction, like these things have to be different from each other, right? Like it makes no sense to say that like my eye is the apple that it sees, right? But as soon as we say, well, these things are actually different, you know, different from what? Because... Is, in other words, is the difference is difference an inherent quality of my eye? Like what? This is what what Storm was getting at. What does it mean to say that my eye is different? Different from different from what? Like different yeah, it's how? Inherently, it's inherently a relational concept. Yeah, exactly. There's inherent, and, and, and as soon as you're talking about a relation, you're you're no longer actually talking about something that's ultimately real because you you know you, uh, a relationship is a kind of a mental fiction that joins the terms uh, that are supposed to be related. And, and particularly when we're talking about something like a, uh, a visual cognition, you know, we're not, we're like, th there is no, we're talking about instantaneous phenomena, right? We're talking about, I mean, first of all, from a Buddhist perspective, but also from a scientific perspective, everything is momentary. There's, there's no such thing as something that stays the same, absolutely the same from even one minute to the one moment, I should say one kind of plank length, plank time, you know, sort of like, like the, the whatever arbitrarily small a unit of time you want to go, there is no point at which from one moment to the next, anything remains the same, 
right? So everything that's existing only ever exists at a single individual moment. And within that single individual moment, how could you ever establish, prove that one like kind of part of reality is different in an ultimate sense from another part of reality? The whole thing doesn't doesn't make that none of this really makes any again we can we can sort of conceptually divide and say like well there's an earlier and a later and blah 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 but but again you know Nagarjuna has already gone through all this in terms of analyzing earlier and later so so the point here is there is no there is no ultimate difference between phenomena that are simultaneous in order for us to be able to say like okay well this is different from that and so we can establish that like another another way look and we talked about this in earlier episodes too so if this doesn't make sense maybe go back to some of those earlier episodes where we talk about simultaneity and relationships between phenomena that are supposed to be simultaneous but the point is in order for there to be a causal conjunction between a and b you would have to be able to establish that a and b are actually different but but you you can't do that if they're existing at the exact same time at the exact same moment then there's no basis for you to be able to do that and if they don't then there's also no basis for you to be able to do that there's never a point at which you have this ability and therefore the, the notion of this kind of causal conjunction as something that we can point to and say ah yes this causal conjunction is real that that just never enters into there's just no point at which you can do that that that's extremely solid that's a very good explanation thank you you know, sometimes I'm muted when I start laughing at what you guys say, or or I'm not. I don't know. Did that make sense? I don't know how well I. No, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I think you pretty yeah, much it, nailed the meaning of that chapter. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that are. I mean, it's it, if something is inherently relational, like it's inherently a dependent concept. It makes no sense to say that it can exist alone. It's just like, yeah, it'd be like saying, uh, like two is actually five. Two can't be five. It's inherently two. Uh, by its definition <laughs> right <laughs> yeah it's yeah. like perfectly you know it's like a perfect example of being incoherent and uh just to, to close that out maybe so like he starts by saying the visible object vision and the seer these three whether in pairs or all together do not enter into conjunction with one another that's verse one but then in verse two he says so desire the same with desire the one who desires and what is desirable likewise the remaining defilements and the remaining ayatanas which is to say like desire the one who desires and what is desirable anger the one who's angry and what is you know infuriating uh ignorance the one who is ignorant and that about which he is ignorant um this structure of you know like the thing and the one who has the or whatever with the ayatanas or the, the sense doors or the sense sources so like with you know your your ear faculty your auditory faculty the audible object and the um and the auditory consciousness all of you know however whatever you want and and, and of course beyond right any kind like it these are specifically these are kind of like some of the most important uh abhidharma type typologies in terms of categories with like you know the six different kinds of consciousness six different kinds of object six different kinds of faculty as well as the three poisons of of uh you know lust or desire anger or hatred and and, and ignorance these are kind of like in a sense that's like most of the buddhist path right there if you really understand these things um, and Nagarjuna is just kind of taking taking a bazooka and blowing it all up, and he's saying, "Well, what are you even really talking about, right?" And 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 any kind of threefold division. He's here. He's targeting threefold division. Uh, elsewhere earlier, um, he was targeting twofold division. And but the but the point is the same because the analysis is basically the same. You know, whether you're talking if you're talking about if you're talking about one thing then you have no ability to distinguish, you, you can't be dividing it. And if you're talking about a two, 
things that are supposed to be in twos or things that are supposed to be in threes, then these are essentially what he's getting at is these are analyzable in terms of ones, at which point you're no longer talking about a, an actual thing that you, you know, an actual threefold division or a twofold division or whatever. Um, and this can apply to any kind of category that, that the, this is very explicitly, he's saying like, you can generalize this argument to whatever kind of list or analysis you've made. Yeah, basically all the arguments that kind of dominate the content of these chapters are usually, maybe all the time, like strictly formally generalizable. You know, anytime, really any, whatever you take as the subject, it can be, you know, if like we're looking at like, for example, the goer and, and the gone, that's generalizable to really any type of change. And the arguments about entity and relation are generalizable to like to any sphere really like they're there it's a it's it's really elegant how it's the same set of observations about how these things work out rationally with what you posit you can you can take them anywhere it kind of links back to what i was saying in the beginning about how there's like a style to the majamaka it's like its own kind of dialectic and you can make it talk to anything you know like someone could be talking to you about plato and the theory of the forms and you can just it comes right apart when you subject it to this dialectic it's very cool one last thing maybe on this chapter, um, the, the kind of general f statement of the argument, which is, you know, maybe take this home or just so people can hear it. In, in verse 6, verse 6 and 7, Nagarjuna writes, If the distinct thing were distinct from that from which it is distinct, then it would be distinct even without that from which it is distinct. In other words, you're saying, okay, apples and oranges are, are different than that, and that different, they really are, they're really, truly, ultimately different well, then even without the orange, the apple would be different. But obviously that makes no sense. So he says, but the distinct thing cannot be distinct without that from which it is distinct. Hence, there is no distinctness. Distinctness is not found in what is distinct, nor, it is, is, it, nor is it found in what is non-distinct. And distinctness not being found, there can be neither the distinct nor the non-distinct. Right? And, and you know, I'll, I'll, I don't want to... I think we've said enough on that. If that doesn't make sense, maybe think about it for a little bit. And if it still doesn't make sense, uh, then come to us and we can talk about it more. But I think if, if you if you sort of sit with that and you think about it for a while, you'll see what's going on, and and maybe you're sort of you'll you'll have a little moment of insight. Yeah. Ask yourself this question: What is five minus? Exactly. Yes. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good. All right. Okay. Uh, you want to go chapter 15? Yeah. Let's go to 15. Yeah. Oh, you know what? I completely skipped over chapter 15. Whoops. <laughs> That's all right. Don't, no worries. Um, I, you know what? Also, I was, I'm so excited about 16, 17, and 18. Um, I don't have anything prepared to say on 15. If I, that, Kagu that, or Dharmakirti. Yeah. Oh, I have... oh, 15 was on connection. I just mislabeled it. Well, they're both kind of on yeah, sim yeah. similar topics. Um, the 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 verse that I, I highlighted, uh, and this is a kind of another one of these just famous verses that I, you know, I would feel like, I feel like our audience, you know, who is maybe their only time they're ever going to be exposed to this. It should be like this kind of, these kind of verses that are so important for the Buddhist tradition. It should be, you know, highlighted that these are important verses that, that, you know, are famous and sort of under, you know, widely understood to be very profound is verse three, um, where he says, given the non-existence of intrinsic nature, how will there be extrinsic nature, which is the translation of Padabhava, which 
so it, well, let me finish the verse first. For, for extrinsic nature is said to be the intrinsic nature of another existent. So, and he, he's obviously kind of playing on words here. The, the word, the Sanskrit word for what we've been calling, you know, inherent existence or self-nature, these kinds of terms we're kind of using loosely because it's sort of a, you know, it, it's, it's a kind of a loose thing um, at a certain level, is the word svabhava which like literally sva is is cognate to the english word self it's it's a reflexive pronoun in sanskrit it's like you know oneself is svam and bhava is a, just a, just one of these words that means a, a million different things but it's from the root bu which is the root of is also cognate to the english word be like being and so a svabhava like if you want to be kind of autistic about it like maybe the most literal and autistic translation would be self-being or own being, which you actually will see sometimes people translate it as like own being. Um, Pada is a, a is the kind of it's a it's another pronoun in Sanskrit. It means like other. It just means other. So, so what he's saying here is okay. If there is no such thing as we sort of been arguing for now, you know, this is, I don't know how many hours we've been doing this. And this is, you know, part six, right? Like the kind of prime number one target of Nagarjuna's analysis so far is the idea of there being a self nature, a swabhava. Okay. So if you want to say that there's, you know, somebody's trying to appeal and say like, okay, well maybe there isn't self nature, but there's some like other kind of, you know, people, the, the self nature of phenomena isn't located in themselves. Like I'm well, okay. You Nagarjuna have done a very good job, like arguing up to this point that things can't have their own nature, but maybe their na nature is like somewhere else. It's in like something else. Right. And so that's what the point of this verse is to say like, okay, well, if, Things don't have their own nature. How could if something doesn't have its own nature? How could it have the nature of something else? How could something else it's, have its own have the nature of the thing that doesn't have its own nature? You were going to say that's essentially arguing that um, the nature of the thing is that its nature is elsewhere. You're just it's just a different kind of nature. Exactly. You're just, it's nature yeah. through the back door. <laughs> exactly. And I mean, it's going to set you up for an infinite regress because you're saying it. Oh, this borrowed its nature from that, which in turn got it from that, which in turn got it from that. I mean, that was the point he made in an earlier chapter, if I remember correctly. Right. Well, that could, I mean, you, you, it could it could set that up, or you could just, I mean, you know, then the, the you could just say, like, okay, well, even, even at that, like, second level, once you've tried to posit that a phenomenon has a nature that's not its own nature, like, again, the whole thing just kind of explodes. It just doesn't. It just doesn't make any sense, but but yeah, the the point is that you know as as Sideritz says um, quite or Sideritz and Katsura say nothing can borrow a nature unless there is something that owns a nature, and so it, you know there there has to come a point, you know that you're you're just kicking the can down the road, or maybe this is what you mean by the infinite regress, you know, but but like you can kick the can down the road. But unless it eventually comes to a stop at some somewhere, there has to be some kind of self nature. Um, then then the exercise is pointless, and that's what this is saying: is that the exercise is pointless because in order for this in order for this, there to be any kind of sense in which it, it 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 there is this kind of extrinsic nature, there has to be some something somewhere with self nature. But as we've you know been analyzing for quite a while now, we we all know there you know as soon as you try to look for any kind of self nature anywhere, you're never going to be able to find it. And so this is just this argument falls flat.
beautiful. Excellent. So where do we want to go from here? Chapter 16? Or yeah, we let's close I, it up. We have uh, going almost an hour, but we can do a little bit on this if y'all like. Well, I just want to give uh, I, I want to give the re, uh, the listeners a little a little preview um, of what we're about to do or <laughs> what we might do some of now and some later. I don't know, but sixteen in the Siddharth's translation is titled "An Analysis of Bondage and Liberation," which you might as well call samsara and nirvana. Uh, Seventeen, an analysis of action and fruit, which is essentially might be called an analysis of karma and 18 an analysis of the self which is really like the core of most people's buddhist practices trying to get around this sense of the self so we're talking if you if you're interested in buddhism and samsara and nirvana and karma and the doctrine of no self then this is this is like super meaty stuff right here yeah absolutely Having said that, I don't know where to start with it, guys. Maybe we uh, maybe we close up for now, and we can just come at all, those three since they're all so important. We can come at that next time. What do y'all think? I'm good to go. Continue going, but if you guys want to do that, that's also absolutely fine. By okay, me. no, let's do it. Why, start why, us out. why don't we try to do at least sixteen today? Okay. Okay. Yeah, we'll do sixteen. All right. So I'll so, give it. A, I'll give it yeah, a go please. since I haven't been I haven't been contributing very much. I'm, I actually. So the, in our, uh, for our listeners, uh, we're using a couple of different translations. I think the core one we're working off of, which Dharmakirti has been reading from, is the Siddharats and Katsura translation. And it comes with a commentary. And in basically every chapter, they start with a little explanation of what the chapter is going to be about. And then they start going through the verses one by one. And I, I've been reading all the, the, um, the commentary, and I find it sometimes extremely helpful and sometimes not. And the introductions, I honestly, I haven't felt them super useful but I highlighted and double underlined the int the introduction to this one um, because I a it's interesting and I, I found it very helpful. So I'm just going to read the very first beginning of this chapter 16 from Siddharth and Katsura. It says, in response to the conclusion of the last chapter, the opponent retorts that there must be intrinsic nature since there would be no bondage to the wheel of samsara and no liberation from samsara unless there were existing things undergoing rebirth. There are two possibilities as to what might be reborn. First, the composite things, or samskaras, those impermanent psychophysical elements, the skandhas. I, I like their use psychophysical elements. It's a good way to parse the skandhas. Um, that originate independence on prior causes and conditions, and thus are composite in the sense examined in chapter 13. And second, the person that is thought of as consisting of the composite elements. So this is great because we get a lot of questions and I think we, you know, we grapple with ourselves. Um, this question about like what is reborn, um, you know, if, if Buddhism believes in reincarnation, but they believe there is no self, this is like a, one of these classical thorny things we talk about, then what the heck is going on, right? And we've sort of answered, well, it's a stream of this and that. I, I'm not going to parse it all out right now, but... The question is, is, is it the person being reborn or is it their, their skandhas? And again, the skandhas are these sort of aggregates of, of yeah, psychophysical elements I, is a good way to put it. Um, or as Nagarjuna is going to come at it with, a, uh, come at us with it in this chapter is it, it's, it's neither. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, again, his argument, his, what he's trying to get at is it's not that there aren't skandhas in a certain sense or that we can't, analyze things at that level it's that that story that we're trying to tell about there is a whether there is a like 
if you say there's a person, then you're getting, I mean, that's completely wrong, right? There's no person that like has their aggregates. And we, you know, because that would involve just to, you know, maybe you're 101 again, like that would involve a thing X that either is comprised of, you know, ABC or has ABC. But either way, you're talking about, okay, so if, 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 it, if the person is made out of ABC, like your, your body and your mind and your, your thoughts, et cetera, um, then we can analyze you into those things and there is no real thing there. Or if you want to say that the person has these things, that it possesses them, then we're talking about a relationship between X and ABC, in which case like that too, like we've just been analyzing there, you, you can't assert that there is a real relationship between the so-called person and the elements, the psychophysical elements, which supposedly, you know, he possesses or whatever. And so like the, the Nagarjuna is importantly not saying that you shouldn't analyze things in terms of, of, of the skandhas. He's simply noting that whatever kind of story you're trying to tell, whatever kind of conceptual framework you're trying to impose, it's just not going to work. It doesn't work. That's the, that's the fundamental issue here. Um, but, but yeah, so, so the, the, in verse one, and this kind of like, again, sort of lay, lays this out in a certain way. He says, if it is <clears throat> com composite things that undergo rebirth, they are not reborn as permanent entities, nor as impermanent entities. If it is the living being that is reborn, the method of refutation is the same. So uh, the, the point is that, again, if you're talking about a composite phenomenon, so you say like, so the classical kind of Buddhist analysis, it's not that the, there's a person who has these things. That's the void. That's the, that's like wrong. And everybody, pretty much everybody understands that that's wrong because that would involve saying essentially that that person would have to be a self and Buddhism says there is no self. Okay, fine. But what that would mean then is that we're talking about the, the, the so-called person or what we're kind of identifying is like, okay, this is this sentient being is composite in the sense that he's made out of these aggregates of form or body as well your your body is a composite right we're made out of many atoms many molecules whatever um you also have you know a composite or uh, a um, aggregate of of uh of consciousness right there's like you have many different cognitions etc this is kind of like that's the basic division is between the mental aggregates and the physical aggregates so okay if you want to say that there is a person that is composed of mental and physical aggregates well then you're talking about something that is impermanent because it's conditioned right so the, the the problem is if you're talking about something that's impermanent then there's no thing like the the rebirth you can say like okay well this person you know this these aggregates this stream of aggregates comes to a certain kind of end in death but then continues like so that the, the you know the body dies but the causal stream continues and then there is rebirth okay but it's it, that new being that second being is just as impermanent as the first and so there's no like single thing that you can point to and say like okay well this is exactly the same in this first life and in this second life after the after the death and the rebirth it, it, you're talking about two different impermanent things they they may have this causal relationship but again you know going all the way back to chapter one the very first verses of this text like it's fine to sort of say heuristically that X and Y exist in a certain kind of causal relationship. But as soon as you start analyzing like what, 
what are you even really talking about? At the time of the first being, there is no second being. At the time of the second being, there is no first being. So in what sense are you positing that they have this ultimate kind of relationship? We can say like this is a solid, stable foundation from which to say this being somehow exists as the same being across life X and life Y or life one and life two. There is no basis for that. There is no ability. You can't, there's nothing solid or stable for you to be able to point to and say this is the same from moment to moment to say nothing of from life to life. Am I making sense? Is that, is that, is that, are you following with the? Yeah. And, and that links up with like a, another way of understanding reincarnation, which is where like, okay, um, you know, the, the Buddha nature is sort of like the starting ground for staging ground for all of this. So, you know, in an instance of delusion where you cling to the self, you're reborn. That is a rebirth. The self has come into being along with all the rest. If that grasping and delusion are ceased, then the self is ceased. If they come up again, then now you're incarnated, so to speak, again. So there's this, like that kind of process of rebirth is sort of always going on. And, and it would be the same. It's the same from moment to moment as it is if you were to think about it from life to life or eon to eon or what have you. It's a, it's a fundamental, it's actually the same problem uh, there's two examples earlier in the text. There's the goer and the path or the mover and the motion. And then there's also the observation that there's no time at which things can begin, right? The time paradox that comes up. So it's it's that same thing again, but here we're talking about a continuation of a being over time. So yeah, I think that makes perfect sense. There's no real, there's no bearer of the continuation of moment to moment the same way there's no bearer um from life to life. So like we're already in, as we, and again, as we'd said earlier, we're already in this liberated state, except it's superficially not so with samsara and suffering and all the rest. Does that, yeah. do you agree with that? I mean, go ahead. Gagi. One thing that kind of is, uh, I mean, what kind of strikes me as, uh, as kind of interesting in this whole thing is, is I get the, the explanation that a reborn being is not either really the same, nor can it really be said to be completely different from the being that preceded it. Um, but I guess the kind of more like bringing it back down to like the more conventional discussion is it, it's, it tends to be that I guess with Tsongkhapa being kind of the exception to this, that there's the idea that it's the storehouse consciousness that's the thing that provides the continuity between the two. Um, I'm just kind of wondering, I mean, aside from saying that that's constantly changing itself, and so it can't really be said to be the same thing from moment to moment either. Um, this gets really going? complicated, yeah. and I don't... I mean, if, if it wasn't changing, it couldn't facilitate the transmigration. If it's changing, exactly. it's not essentially there. Yeah, what he said. It's not like... The, yeah. the, the point is... The store, so... <laughs> Oh man, I don't even know if I want to open this can of worms. The the okay. the, the we'll TLDR. No, it's well, fine. Let me give a TLDR. The TLDR is that like the store the storehouse consciousness is not. It's it's okay. The the problem is with trying to say that things are either the same or different, right? The problem is trying to say like okay, here this thing really is the same, or there like that thing really is different, right? That's Nagarjuna's, Nagarjuna's issue. And so as long as we're sort of willing to take an ontological stance of saying like, well, you know, from moment to moment, these phenomena are not, they're not really the same, but they're also really not different. And they're kind of, you know, like in order for there to be either the same or different, there would have to be some kind of, um, you know, ultimate reality to them. Or in order for there to be some kind of an ultimate reality to them, they would have to be 
the same or different. But we, in the absence of that, because we can't, if we try to say they're really the same, we run into problems. We try to say they're really different, we run into problems. Where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us that, you know, they're not really the same, but they're also not really different, and so they're not actually really real. And that all that applies to the storehouse consciousness applies to there's no there's no thing that that doesn't apply to. I don't know if that uh, answers that, your question. Yeah, that's and, and also a bit of a mind bender for you, or maybe a, a little like a trippy thing here. That also goes for people who are alive with you at the same time. If you cannot establish the difference between yourself and another person who exist together at the same time, how much more so for for passing beyond the veil of death and coming back? Yeah, again, great. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the, the point, again, is just we can't, there's nothing wrong with, like, obviously you and I are different being. We have different cognitions, so mm-hmm. that's fine. There's no, there's no problem with sort of recognizing that, and we have to sort of proceed from that. At the same time, like, what does that difference really consist in? Where can we, you know, and, and the more you try to, so you, maybe you posit something, but then you can come back at it with a Nagarjunian kind of critique, and then that makes you have to kind of keep, and you're just going to have to keep working and working harder and harder asymptotically, as we described earlier. Um, and you're never actually going to be able to arrive at this kind of solid, irrefutable conceptual scheme that's going to allow you to say once and for all, well, this is different from that in this exact way. It, it doesn't it doesn't work like like that. What no. you should do is is simply abandon all of this and walk through the yeah. gateless gate in this yeah. instant. Yeah. Yeah, well, better, easier said than done, but yes. Yeah. Just do it right now. Do it. There you go. It happened. Okay. Well, I, I would, I've been sitting on whether or not to say this or not. Um, but, you know, uh, to repeat myself from previous episodes, um, this stuff is important. And I think it's very good, again, you know, to, to have a map to the stars that you're going to, but then you have to actually get in your spaceship and go there. And, um, you know, I was thought of this only because today on Twitter, I or yesterday, I said something about to you, Storm, actually about, uh, you know, uh, Sheila and Donna and uh, Bhavana, Bhavana and these other concepts are, are more important than the, the label Buddhism, right? And I, their morality and generosity and concentration and meditation, these things. And somebody just asked me politely, you know, why, why does generosity help you get to nirvana? And the answer from the Buddha is that these things, like specifically morality and generosity, give you a a kind of more positive view of yourself. And that sounds um, that sounds contradictory, right? Because he also teaches that there is no self there. But in order to even get to the point of stillness, quiet, and concentration that you need to get to to see these ultimate reality nature things, um, you first have to like. St- you know, if you were drunk and running around killing people with machine guns and stuff, and then someone came up to you and said, awaken into reality right now, do it. Uh, it might make a cool story if that person did, but I'm going to go out on a limb and suggest that that person has continued to be racked with their crazy, violent, drunken karma, and they're not going to awaken as a result of that exhortation. And all of us, even if we're not crazy, drunken, and violent or whatever, are caught up in our are you know are sort of drunken sort of violent um sort of crazy um karmas and in order to get out of that the buddha suggests practicing morality practicing generosity practicing uh, meditation concentration um and then working towards that but i'm not saying that that means you know oh, this doesn't matter i i think it's very important to sit down with the understanding with, with these sort of baseline with these understandings that 
of what the project is. Because if you sit down with some other project, you're, you're probably not going to get there that way. Um, but I just, I always like to throw that in because we get very arcane sometimes. Yeah. And I'm wondering if the listeners are like, what? That's really you know? beautiful, Laura. <laughs> and I think it's really important to keep in mind. And and just on that note, I, I think what I would add is is just that, you know, there is a nature of reality. I think this often gets lost. And this is, you know, we call ourselves the right wing Dharma squads. And I, and I, you know, there's a kind of constant under underlying theme is like, well, why do we say that? Or what is right wing exactly about that? And honestly, I think, you know, one kind of very useful heuristic for, you know, separating the right wing from left or whatever is the acknowledgement that there is a nature of reality. There is such a thing as ultimate truth. That is a a thing that you know that 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 refers to something in in some meaningful way and it can be known it is an object of knowledge in a certain sense not maybe in a conceptual it's not an object of conceptual knowledge it's not an object of dualistic knowledge it's not in other words it's not it doesn't when knowing that going through the gateless gate you know you 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 that realization is not different from the thing that is realized nevertheless it is a, in a certain sense you can talk about it and it really is a thing to be realized and from that perspective like it is part of the nature of reality. It is part of the nature of dharmata, right? It is part of the nature of the Buddha's realization, like built into that inherently, built into the nature of reality as such is generosity. In other words, like Buddhas are generous. Buddhas give. Buddhas are Buddhas exhibit good conduct. Buddhas exhibit patience. Buddhas exhibit meditation and concentration. The point is, like these are not just sort of. It, it's not. It's not exactly fake it till you make it, and it's not just a question of like habituating yourself to the nature of reality in a certain way, although it is both of those things. It's also like, you know, before before he attained enlightenment, the Buddha meditated because he needed to attain enlightenment. After he attained enlightenment, the Buddha meditated to teach beings that they need to meditate, or just because that's what it means to be a Buddha is that's part of what you do is you meditate. It's just built, it. it's just how it is. And if you have a problem with that, I don't know. I'm sorry. Like, I don't know what to tell you. That's just how it is. If you don't like it, you know, uh, enjoy suffering for eternity because that's what you're going to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. No, it's, it's true. I kind of am reminded of a comment made by my Lama a while back, which um, more or less, you know, it's Buddhist philosophy can be a very interesting thing and it's very possible to just, you know, study it as an academic thing. But really all of it's designed towards the end of providing that kind of insight, getting you towards that end goal. It's, so that in that sense, I guess it's really important to keep in mind what this stuff is all actually for, more than anything else. Absolutely. Well, I have a closing case from the Blue Cliff Record, if you think we're ready. I just wanted to highlight in one second, and probably it'll relate, yes, I, I'm sir. guessing. Absolutely. So just to this highlighted section, this is a great comment from um, Siddharths and Katsura, they say, if release from samsara comes about through the cessation of appropriation, through ceasing to have thoughts of I and mine, then the desire for one's own liberation constitutes an obstacle to its attainment. This is the Buddhist formulation of the so-called paradox of liberation. This paradox is recognized by virtually all schools of Indian philosophy concerned with release from suffering and rebirth. Here the paradox is put in terms of the notion that when one has the thought, I shall be released, one is identifying with and appropriating the psychophysical elements, which is just what causes bondage to samsara. So the last verse of this chapter is, 
when where nirvana is not reified nor samsara rejected what samsara is there what nirvana is falsely imagined and their commentary continues the argument of this chapter has shown that there can be no such thing as the overcoming of ignorance and the attaining of nirvana or to be more precise it cannot be ultimately true that there is such a process and in the absence of such a process it is difficult to see how there could be the two states of samsara and nirvana storm you wanted to close yeah uh this is from the blue cliff record this is the 11th case if you want to look it up huang po instructing the community said all of you people are gobblers of dregs if you go on traveling around this way where would you have today do you know that there are no teachers of zen in all of china at that time a monk came forward and said then what about those people in various places who order followers and lead communities wang po replied i did not say that there is no zen it's just that there are no teachers of it beautiful thank you all so much for participating thank you to everyone in the chat thank you guys and we will catch you next time